Welcome to Zero Trust 30. I'm your host, George Wilkes, and this is the show that helps you make sense of the cybersecurity sensation that is Zero Trust. This podcast is sponsored by AppGate, so head on over to AppGate.com after this session to learn more about our Zero Trust Network Access solution. We've got two wonderful guests, one that's a returning and one that's new. Uh, we've got Jawahar Sivasankaran, who's the Chief Operating Officer here, and Officer and President of AppGate. Uh, he's got 23 years of cybersecurity experience with the likes of Splunk and Cisco under his belt. Uh, he does go by Jawa, so that's how we'll be referring to him today. Uh, Jawa, go ahead and say hi to the audience. Hey, everybody. How's your morning? Thanks, Jawa. And then we've also got uh, Leo Taddeo, who's the CISO of AppGate and president of our federal division. Uh, so he's going to be kind of wearing both hats in today's conversation as uh, CISO and federal representative. Um, although I guess I shouldn't say federal representative, that's got dual meaning. Uh, Leo has previously the CISO of Six Terra, and before that, he was the special agent in charge of the special operations and cyber division of the FBI's New York office. So, Leo, thanks for being here. Say hi to everyone so we can uh, know you're here in human. Thanks, George, and hello to everyone. Great to be here. All right. So before we get into to today's topic, we like to do a little bit of an icebreaker, a little bit of fun here. Uh, it's the what's bugging you game. And so, um, Jawa, let's go ahead and start with you. Uh, what's what's bugging you today? You know, there's a lot. I'm, I'm sure it's all going in our lives. But specific to the industry, I think um, I would want to, you know, bring out, hey, the market conditions have changed, right? This is across all industries, but definitely in the tech world. And uh, one of the things um, that as a practitioner that, has been in the security industry for almost 25 years now. I, uh, you know, there's there's definitely concern inside me that we want to make sure that we as a security industry we're moving forward with the right investments, and that's across the board, right? Uh, you know, we've got customers uh, that um, feel like, hey, there are certain things that they can hold off in, on the security side, right? So. We want to make sure the customers are continuing to invest in protecting their critical environments. Uh, the good news is there are areas like Zero Trust, Zero Trust Access that are definitely top of the priority list. Uh, but we want to make sure all things security, uh, they're moving forward uh, as you know, we had planned a you know, few months back uh, before you know, the overall market you know, turned in a different direction. So I would start with that. That's a great response. I think it's timely for the topic of, uh, of today. Leo, uh, what's bugging you? Well, that's a long list, George. Um, <laughs> you know, in, in, in just general terms, uh, I was on an airplane uh, earlier this week and air travel is not what it used to be. So that uh, is off topic, but air travel is definitely not what it, uh, my favorite thing to do these days. Uh, but in, in industry terms, what's bugging me is the uh, continuous uh, obstacles presented by legacy technologies and uh, incumbent vendors uh, and putting um, sometimes corporate interests ahead of customer interests in preventing innovation and delaying change. Uh, so I'll touch on that later, but it's cer certainly something I see in both uh, in the private sector and in, and in government. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that takes us into uh, today's topic as well. Um, and I think both of your responses are, are on, on par with what we're going to be talking about. Um, the topic for today is closing the gap between CISOs and security leaders across the board um, and basically bridging that gap with the board of directors and uh, you know business leaders to help build this zero trust security culture. Um, and I think, you know, obviously security's number one job is to protect the organization, but there's a lot of opportunity there for 
uh, empowering the business to kind of reach their transformation goals, even under times um, like now, right? When, when the market isn't doing great and, and things are kind of slowing up a little bit, it's a great opportunity for security leaders to jump in there and kind of demonstrate and show how their cutting edge projects can uh, move the needle, um, again, not just for security, but for the business at large. So according to PwC, only 33% of directors say they think their board understands the company's cybersecurity vulnerabilities very well. Uh, this actually was, you know, a little higher than I would have uh, would have guessed myself because it comes as no surprise. Sixty three percent of CISOs don't report to the board at all, which makes it much more challenging. And that's according to a Panimon Institute survey. So when we start to think about something as transformative for the security function of the business as zero trust, the challenge isn't one of technological capabilities because there's plenty out there. Um, it's often the headwinds that all security leaders continue to face when translating a security project into a business objective. Uh, if the security function is the only ones focused on zero trust, then success is significantly more challenging. So how then do we facilitate a cross-functional culture that embraces the philosophy of zero trust and reap the benefits of its security, and more importantly, the operational benefits? And that's exactly what we've brought the two of you here today to kind of talk about. Um, and I'd love to kick it off with this very straightforward question. Um, you know, Leo, we'll start with you. How do you feel the role of the CISO is evolving? I think in the past, um, and, and past in this industry isn't very long, um, right. past meaning five years. Uh, in, the, in the past five years, we've seen more emphasis on a CISO's business savvy than on their technical expertise. So early days, uh, the CISO was usually the most knowledgeable expert in cybersecurity technology uh, in the room, in the company. Uh, today, that uh, isn't always true. So the the, 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 the skill set that a CISO needs to be successful in a large enterprise today has shifted from having the most technical expertise to having uh, a good balance between technical and business expertise. So we see the actual day-to-day -day functions of a CISO and uh, their responsibilities uh, shifting more away from uh, solving technical problems to solving business problems. Joe, what do you think? Is that, is that vibe with you? Do you have anything to add? No, it's spot on, right? Um, CISOs have to align with the business risks, quote unquote, enterprise risk management. Uh, and what we're clearly seeing is it's less of tools and technologies. There's there's always going to be the the next best thing from a technology point of view, uh, but the key is going to be how can CISOs align that with the policies that's there within the enterprise or, or any organization, uh, and then the culture, uh, and eventually making sure that's all aligned with the business priorities. Uh, so that's going to be very important. And again, that goes back to the topic. Uh, that, that we have for today, making sure that the boards and business leaders are aligned to cybersecurity uh, priorities. Yeah, I've got to imagine that that's really challenging of kind of up-leveling the messaging and how you speak about what you do on a day-to-day -day basis when, you know, the, the cybersecurity vernacular is so so inside baseball. Uh, for outsiders, it's, it's, it's difficult to grasp. Um, Leo, I'd like to kind of bring this question back to you and have you change your, your, your hat, so to speak. Does a lot of what we're mentioning here, does this stand true for the federal government as well? And, you know, obviously there's not board of directors, but um, there's still security leaders interacting with other functions that are kind of more business-like. Uh, what does that look like? 
Well, let me let me stay on topic about the role for a second, um, okay. because I think it's it's really good. You know, many of our listeners are uh, aspiring security professionals and trying to understand um, where, where their career will take them in the long run. And um, I use this example. I've been using it for many years in understanding business value and interpreting that for uh, executive leadership and the board. And, and I use an example back from 2013 in the Sony Pictures breach. And if you had asked the Sony's Pictures CISO prior to the breach, which is, of course, well known now, and, and you know the U.S. federal government, FBI included, concluded that it was the work of um, North Korean hackers and various political motives as well as financial motives. But let's talk about the CISO's role in that prior to the breach. So many CISOs are asked uh, and tasked with focusing on crown jewels. And if you ask the CISO prior to the Sony breach, what was uh, the Sony Pictures crown jewels? Uh, likely the answer was the unpublished motion pictures that Sony had yet to monetize uh, and that were sitting in various servers and various stages of editing uh, where you know big investments were made in creating the content and ultimately uh, the company was banking on monetizing that content. And of course, there was a lot of emphasis on protecting those servers, but really what turned out was the adversary uh, knew a little bit more about the business than even Sony did because the real damage to Sony, if you remember, was the publication of emails from the CEO that criticized various artists and various partners and causing great reputation damage. And so if you look at Sony as a business, and this is really the takeaway, they could replace a motion picture that had not yet been monetized. They'd just make another one. But what they couldn't easily replace was relationships with artists and partners that wanted to do business with them. And so that's a wake-up call for CISOs. Do you really know where the value is for your business? Is the value in a set of products, even a version of a product, or is the value in the trust that you have built over decades even uh, that you can lose in a, type, in a, in a security breach? So I, wanna, I wanted to emphasize that because uh, we sometimes think of nuts and bolts and uh, a CISO's job today is to think differently than the board and to give the advice that the board hasn't yet thought of uh, because we're looking out for risks that the board can't see. Um, but let me go back to your question about the federal uh, government. Um, I think the CISO role in the federal government is evolving just like it is in the um, commercial sector, uh, but the commercial sector moves faster than the federal sector. Um, and that is evident in most CISOs in the federal government having advisory roles, but not budgetary authority. Uh, this is different than in the commercial sector. Many, well, most CISOs have significant budget authority, purchase decision authority. That is not the case necessarily in the federal government. Most CISOs are uh, still advising CIOs and budget and, and, and CFOs on budget decisions without being able to make the final call. I think that's going to change, but it's much slower. And, uh, and, and of course, it's bigger bureaucracy, so it's going to take some time. But again, um, this federal government is definitely focusing on the value of a CISO role. They've created mandates uh, for naming CISOs and giving them uh, some authority, uh, just not budget authority, which really matters. Yeah, and no, I appreciate that. Um, it's a great story, too, with the, with the Sony and, and you elevating kind of where the real risk actually was. 
So, Jawa, this might be a bit of a, uh, a layup here, um, kind of leading the witness question. But why, why is this conversation so relevant? Like, well, why is it so important that we've got cybersecurity kind of at that board level influencing business decisions? Yeah. One thing I want to state here is the board engagement from a cybersecurity perspective has definitely changed. It has improved compared to, let's say, 10 years ago. Right, it's lots of mandates, lot of, lots of regulations coming into play. So there's there's the good news part of it, right? You know, we want to make sure we're capturing that good news because there's definitely, you know, go back to you know 2010 or 2012 and fast forward, you know, 10 years, 12 years. Definitely, we've seen that progress happen, but it's not enough, right? You know, what we've seen is hey, the engagement is there, but it's not enough, and right? a lot of times we still see it's check the box, right? You got a CISO coming in and reporting once a quarter, right? And it is a lot of tech speak, right? Uh, the number of day zero attacks that we see. I've seen that in, in a presentation. And a lot of times you got board members that do not fully understand a day zero attack. And in some ways, if I am um, a, a corporation or an organization in, in the government, I'm probably not concerned about the day zero attacks. I want to look at those attacks that are out there in the wild for a while and am I protected from those with the right patches and the right rules and the right systems in place, right? And, and policies to go along with that. Uh, so, so in some ways, it's that gap between what the CISO is communicating and how the board is interpreting the enterprise risk that the technology or the lack thereof or the policy changes that are bringing to it. Uh, just, just quickly, I had the opportunity to work closely with insurance companies, uh, both underwriters and brokers in, in one of the projects that I did in, in my past life. Uh, and you could clearly see the advice that some of these risk management firms they're giving to the boards, they're very different. We're talking about enterprise risk management, right? Within two standard deviations, what's the probability of uh, having a large uh, um, uh, uh, of, of having a, a high impact event that's going to slow down the business, right? They're truly talking in enterprise risk terms, whereas you see the cyber speak sometimes, or a lot of times what we see at the board level, it's not connected, right? So there's that disconnect that we got to close. Uh, but having said that, I want to go back to my opening point. We've made some good progress in the last 10, 12, 15 years. Uh, some of it is forced upon by the governments across the world, regulations coming in, uh, and some of it is uh, has happened organically. But having said that, there's a lot more that we need to do as an industry, right? Bottoms up, top down, and we got to do a better job on both sides. Leo, do you share that same level of optimism that Jawa has and kind of seeing some of this progression where non-security leaders, uh, specifically in the federal space for you, are uh, buying into cybersecurity being a, a strong imperative? Yeah, I am optimistic. Um, there's a lot of evidence that there's progress being made uh, in cybersecurity. It is a uh, ongoing arms race, though, between the adversary and uh, both uh, security professionals in government and private sector. So as, as much as we have improved cybersecurity, the adversary has also studied our improvements and figured out ways to get around them so that we have uh, an imperative to be constantly improving. And it's important that we get boards involved. It's important that we get the most senior executives 
in an organization involved. It is an enterprise risk. Um, and unfortunately, it's a more frequent and more impactful uh, event in that um, organizations are, are dealing with. And, and it has become, you know, for public companies, it's become something that investors want to know more about. Uh, they want to see the uh, company's true risk. They want to see how the board is managing that risk. And they want to know when there is a cybersecurity incident um, and whether or not it's a material impact to operations and ultimately to their investment. So um, we see, you know, things like the SEC uh, changing and proposing amendments to reporting rules uh, requiring more reporting on this. And we see more of this information being published by companies. High profile uh, incidents are certainly making the news, but so is um, the government's effort to regulate it. So, yeah, I'm optimistic. I think in the federal government, uh, we have, uh, AppGate itself has conducted surveys with federal uh, IT professionals, and the results of those sh- surveys show that they are serious, they're committed, and they believe that they will meet uh, various timelines in the mandates. And so there's good reason to be optimistic. There's also good reason to re- remain vigilant. And I uh, agree with uh, Jawa that it's an impact that can't be ignored and, and requires constant um, attention, uh, readjustment, and investment. Yeah, no room for, for, for complacency, that's for sure. So let's, let's kind of turn the topic then a little bit towards Zero Trust specifically. Um, so how would, and Leo, let's, let's kind of stick with you. How would you, if you're talking to a non-cybersecurity professional, right, a business leader, whether it's a CEO, CFO, um, how would you define zero trust so that they can understand it and ideally kind of become evangelists of it, right? And then see the positive impacts. I mean, zero trust as a, as a name has a negative connotation right out of the gate. So you kind of have to automatically get over that hurdle. Um, how, how do you, how would you approach that? Yeah, it's hard to put it in a few words, even though it is sure. a relatively simple principle, um, but you have to put it in the context of where we were and where we, where we need to be. And where we were um, is the, old business model of having employees and assets really in one place, in a building usually or on a campus, where we had a security strategy that basically said everything inside this perimeter, whether it was in the building or on the campus, once it's inside is trusted. And that was implicit trust. Um, That business model and that architecture changed. Uh, It changed when most of our employees are now working remote. It changed when we, uh, when businesses started to adopt uh, software as a service uh, and cloud delivered services. And it changed when many, many enterprises moved assets out off premises to either a co-location facility or to a cloud, a public cloud environment. And with all those architecture changes, the idea of trusted inside and untrusted outside went out the window. And hence, we have to uh, adopt a, a, a smaller trust circle. And the smaller we can make it and the closest we can get to zero trust, the better. Meaning that instead of trusting something that we believe to be inside the perimeter, we authenticate everything before we allow it to connect. Uh, no one is trusted. Nothing is trusted. Each connection, each uh, access request is validated, authenticated. Uh, before it's allowed to connect. And that's where we have a paradigm shift really in the security strategy that is now being termed zero trust rather than implicit trust. 
No, that's an important distinction, right? Because I think a lot of people argue that it really is about zero implicit trust because zero trust feels very stark in that you don't trust anything or anybody under any context when in reality it's all about it's all about the context and in which uh, in which context you, you you give that trust to somebody to access uh, various materials. Java, do you have a particular way in which you like to talk about zero trust to uplevel it a little bit? I, I think Leo summarized it really well. Uh, in, in addition to that, I would point out, I think it's key for us to highlight the the business benefits of something like zero trust, right? I mean, we all talk about digital transformation and uh, George, you know, we did this study with Nimitz and the real economic value report that they did on AppGate SDP. And then one of the you know stark findings there was uh, ZTNA, zero trust network access, it accelerates digital transformation uh, by an average of 119%, right? So clearly there is value in adopting a framework like zero trust for your cybersecurity needs, not for the sake of security. Here we're talking about driving business transformation, digitization projects, and that's important for business leaders because you can do that with confidence uh, and you can move fast with some of those business goals you you have in front of you versus being bogged down by the technical policies, the cybersecurity tools that you have to put in place. And this is why kind of taking out that implicit trust goes a long way because we are able to have the right checks at, at every point. You know, the first level of entry, we're able to you know, stop the lateral movements, uh, keep any uh, damage and a control to, you know, smaller footprint, all of those things. And this is essentially what we want to drive to a business audience so that they can execute their business priorities with confidence. Yeah, no, I appreciate appreciate you adding that because that's uh, extremely important. Um, I think the the conventional thinking is security is always an inhibitor. It's always a friction point. And I think the reality is, is it no longer has to be. Like we talked about at the beginning, it can very much be an enabler. So Leo, let's bring this back to you. What are some of the biggest hurdles for security leaders and CISOs when they're kind of going after a zero trust uh, project or initiative? As I mentioned earlier, there's the technology, legacy technologies and incumbent vendors and really lack of expertise in executing zero trust projects, I think are the three lar- the three most impactful obstacles. So let's, if you break those down, if you talk about uh, legacy technologies, many of the uh, larger enterprises have made major investments in hardware and software. And unless it's the eve of a refresh cycle, it's hard to justify uh, ripping out uh, what is still viable, but not maybe necessarily the best. Um, And so change is usually tied to refresh cycles, and those are five to seven years now for hardware software combinations. Second is incumbent vendors who have a vested interest and who have very powerful relationships within organizations, both with uh, technical staff and with uh, procurement offices that are comfortable with legacy vendors. They, they the Legacy vendors are not um, necessarily in favor of innovation and change. Uh, they often advocate for uh, an enterprise to buy more of the same. Uh, we see it with legacy, in, uh, legacy vendors telling their customers the problem that they have is they're just not buying enough of what we are selling. Uh, and solving problems by selling more of the same. 
Um, and the third is lack of expertise. Um, there's a change. There's a, there's there's massive change in the technologies that we're using. Uh, so most uh, technical staff today is focused on the data center model, meaning they are familiar with managing servers in a data center and software that runs on those servers. Migrating that to a cloud uh, architecture requires a change in experts, and there's a shortage of those experts, sure. not to mention a shortage of the expertise in the security functions. Um, and so all three of those things tend to slow down uh, the innovation that we need. Um, but uh, we're seeing, and we're getting back to the topic of board of directors, we're seeing boards uh, mandate uh, change. We're seeing boards set timelines and actually perform the oversight function that they are uh, responsible for. And we're seeing that change and resistance break down. Thankfully, uh, we're seeing enterprises uh, make the investment, hire the right people, or get the experts that they need uh, from outside consultants and actually implement the, you know, the zero trust architectures that they need to move forward. Hey, Leo brought up some great brought up some great points, right? Especially on the legacy vendors and trying to push things through, keep status quo. Uh, I've been part of many of those legacy technologies over the course of the last twenty five years. I mean, think VPNs that have been around for thirty plus years without much innovation getting at it, right? Or for that matter, network admission control. Or even we can you know go and talk about firewalls, right? From stateful firewalls, which are still out there. Uh, IPS, IDS, intrusion detection, intrusion prevention systems, um, or, or even for that matter, even the so-called next-gen products, right? You know, there, there have been a couple of categories where we've truly seen some next-gen products come out, and even those are 15-ish years now, right? Um, so there's a lot of noise uh, in terms of zero trust because it's a buzzword, it's hot, uh, and that create some confusion in terms of, hey, what exactly should be done? Uh, a lot of times there is you know, some sort of education that we have to go through. The good news is in the last two, three years, we've seen standards bodies step up, right? Like, like NIST stepping up, you know, we've got uh, standards coming out. We've got, uh, you know, governments pushing zero trust principles down the chain so that there is a framework that everybody can follow. So all of those are great things, but we, we still see some confusion, right? And especially part of this is legacy players trying to push their thing or 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 just applying the zero trust moniker on a legacy technology with just a, a few incremental innovation added versus a truly zero trust mindset that's needed. Or for that matter, some of the platform players that are really good with other things, let's say a secure web gateway or, or data loss prevention, they're really good. You got to give credit to them, but they try to, squeeze in a check the box zero trust access, right? And that kind of takes the whole thing out because you as an enterprise or, or a government organization, you want to truly embrace the zero trust policies and, and framework. Uh, and sometimes you see these legacy vendors or, or so-called platform vendors trying to jam and squeeze in zero trust access, ZTNA, uh, and ending up uh, with uh, something that's absolutely quite not there uh, for a true zero trust framework to be adopted. Yeah, I think one thing I would add as well is, um, you know, zero trust kind of doesn't just sit within the security org, right? I mean, it's going to touch IT, networking, cloud teams. Leo, you mentioned that. I think that harkens all the way back to 
you know, the, the changing of the role of a security leader to become more business savvy, focus on relationship building and not try to do this in a silo, right? It's got to be cross-functional um, because the technologies, I mean, you, you mentioned it, Java VPNs, a lot of the time that comes out of the IT team, right? Um, it's, it's not always a security uh, project. And so there's got to be influence there and understanding as to why that VPN is, is no longer um, a secure or viable solution, right? In the eyes of the security practitioners. Okay, so last question here before we kind of get into some of the fun stuff. Budget season, right? We're coming to come into close of, of 2022 here into 2023, which is just crazy to think that we're already there. Um, do either of you have any guidance that you would give to security leaders who are looking to kind of earmark line items for uh, their zero trust projects going into, into next year? Leo, we'll kick it off with you. In general, um, for security teams and for IT teams, Budgeting for uh, zero trust is really not budgeting for a line item. It's right. it's it's budgeting for capabilities that adopt zero trust principles. Uh, and so, a few guidelines that I would uh, think I think are worth uh, considering and incorporating into your planning is to take a long term IT strategy when you think about zero trust. Uh, don't try to boil the ocean. Uh, take on small projects that can. Be, uh, survive that can survive uh, over time in a software-defined architecture of the future. Um, I would start with uh, whatever refresh, refresh efforts are underway and focus on zero-trust principles for those refresh eff uh, efforts. And I would uh, also advise to seek outside help. There are many uh, consultants and uh, managed service providers that can guide an organization through the journey. And lack of expertise should not be uh, a showstopper. So those are some of the things that apply to all enterprises. I think on the federal budget point of view, um, we, you know, the federal budget is really a complicated process within the government. It shouldn't be, um, but it, unfortunately it is. But here's where we are with the 2023 budget. We have seen um, budget requests from federal civilian and DOD agencies include specific zero trust initiatives and zero trust projects. So agencies like the Department of Energy have requested tens of millions of dollars in their budget requests. Now those requests go up to various committees in Congress and have ultimately come out in uh, resolutions and ultimately in appropriations bills, but we're just not quite there yet. We have the requests for zero trust and we have a continuing resolution that has placed all of the appropriations bills on hold. And so I'm optimistic that the zero trusts, zero trust projects that have been requested by multiple federal civilian agencies and DOD will ultimately be approved. But this process is, is delayed uh, and delay, uh, you know, just lengthens the time that we remain uh, at this state of vulnerability. So at the end of the day, these projects in the federal government will be funded uh, and the federal government will move in this direction. There are mandates uh, that make it uh, unequivocal. It must move. It's been ordered to move and it has to move. Uh, just you need dollars to do that. And those dollars are going to come. They're just going to come early 2023, mid 2023. We'll see those dollars loosen up. Joe, any, uh, any thoughts from you on, on budgeting? I would I would add look at the full value of zero trust access or zero trust network access. A lot of times we see 
you know, some of the legacy players or the platform vendors that are trying to squeeze in ZTNA along with some of their major things, they do one thing, right? Maybe they replace VPN and they do a relatively decent job, but uh, Zero Trust Network Access or Zero Trust Access goes far beyond just remote access. And we're clearly seeing this with a lot of our customers uh, that are leveraging uh, software-defined perimeter for cloud access, protecting their cloud assets, workloads, right? Apply the same policies, make that unified policy management across remote access, cloud access. We're also seeing enterprise campus access as users, as employees are coming back into the office post-COVID, right? Uh, they're asking for the same level of security, the simplicity that they had when they were working from home, and rightly so, right? So we do have customers that are leveraging software-defined perimeter for enterprise access, uh, for campus enterprise access, right? So the the thing I would say from a budgeting point of view is uh, think beyond the standard use cases that are sometimes pushed by the legacy players or the platform players trying to squeeze in ZTNA as a line item. but Look at the overarching zero trust access framework so that the same software defined approach can be applied to remote access, enterprise access, cloud access, and even IoT access when there's a need to secure, you know, healthcare or manufacturing, any of those IoT type of environments. So that should be the focus because there's a lot more value to be had when you look at this with a zero trust platform approach with a framework approach versus just a point product getting you know, jammed in with something that's much larger in place. Yeah, and it's and it's and it's never over, right? It's it's you're going to continuously be improving your zero trust security posture and advancing it over time. And there's tons of resources out there. I mean, you mentioned NIST at the, at the forefront of this, but I know CISA has also got a maturity model. Um, we have a maturity model that's on our resources section that you can go check out as well. Uh, and I would be remiss if I didn't put a plug in for the fact that we're doing a webinar with Forrester in a couple of weeks with David Holmes on this exact topic of zero trust maturity. Uh, we said it before and we'll say it again, right? Start small, think big, scale fast. Um, you've got to, you know, you've got to get started, uh, but it doesn't mean boiling the ocean to, to, to Leo's point. So listen, thank you both so very much uh, for joining us today. Uh, tons of insights, uh, lots to go back here and listen to. I know I'm going to be doing that. I think there was a lot covered. Um, any final thoughts from either of you before we kind of wrap up and, and do our fun rapid fire questions? So I've been in the security field and, and in various roles for many, many, many years, decades. And I've tried to mature how I think about security leaders role in an enterprise. And I, uh, rely on, um, people who taught me, uh, great lessons in this field. And I once asked, um, a security leaders, uh, this question, I said, what, what's really your job? I mean, what do you do? And his answer was, my job is to make it safe for people to tell me the truth. Huh. And it's such a profound thing for a security leader to think, to, to do and to accomplish, because if you don't know what's really going on, if you don't know what your real risks are, because people in your organization are afraid to tell you, then no matter how smart you are, no matter how technically savvy you are, you will not get what you need to do your job. And so for those folks who are in our audience who are aspiring leaders, whether technical leaders like folks who want to be CISO someday or chief security officers someday, um, your 
most valuable to your organization if you can gather up what the organization needs in order to make big decisions. And the only way you're going to do that is to make it safe for people to tell you the truth. I love that. Yeah, I mean, it's all about empathy, right? Um, to error is human. And I think we, we hear about this a lot with like even just, you know, standard uh, phishing tests that people do in their companies. It's, it's not an opportunity to slap a hand and tell somebody off. It's an opportunity to learn and teach. Um, yeah, I love that. Joe, what about you? Any final thoughts? Uh, I would say embrace change. Be open to embracing change. And this industry moves fast. Uh, and it's important for... CISOs and security executives to to do that, uh, but at the same time, it has to be balanced with, um, you know, avoiding um, a, a scaling of tools. Right? You know, what you don't right. want to end up is in the process of embracing change, uh, just just going ahead and purchasing you know point product after the other. Right? So focus on embracing change, but focus on solving broader set of problems. Look at look at frameworks. And the good news is, again, as we discussed, uh, there's there's a lot more guidance that, you know, we all have as security practitioners today than, let's say, in the late 90s or the early 2000s, right? Or, or even just 10 years back. Uh, so that, that, that would be my closing thought. No, I appreciate that. So um, I know you guys are you guys are busy. So if we can hold on to you for sixty more seconds or so, we're just going to do a little bit of a fun game here, which has nothing to do with the topic that we've been talking about today, uh, but everything to do with getting to know uh, the two of you. So I'm going to ask three questions. Um, Leo, I'll start with you, and then Jawi, you can answer the same question. Uh, rapid fire, no holds bars, whatever you want. What's your favorite holiday and why? Thanksgiving because it's hard to argue that we shouldn't be thankful. Uh, and it's a great opportunity to get the family together around the table. So that's my favorite Thanksgiving. Plus the turkey. Jawa, what about you? Uh, I'm good. I'm going to go with the same as much as obviously, you know, Christmas because it's extended. Uh, but at times if you're, you know, closing fiscal years uh, towards the end of the holiday season, that always puts that extra stress. Uh, so I would definitely go with Thanksgiving as well. Very good. All right. If you could be a professional athlete, what sport would you play? And uh, excuse me if you already are, and I'm not aware of it. Leo? I would be a professional golfer. Okay. Um, because it's easy on your body. You can do it until you're quite advanced in age, unlike other sports that beat you up. And uh, it's a great way to spend the day just walking up and down some, some of the most beautiful places on earth. So professional golfers, I think, have it pretty pretty good. John, what about you? I think I might have mentioned this before in another podcast. A sprinter, especially the 200 meters, right? Uh, I'm not a big athlete, but uh, if, if uh, I was one, yeah, definitely the bend of the 200 meters. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to watch. All right. Last question. What's one food you absolutely despise? Um, it's not really a food. It, it's a, a, It's a style of preparation. I don't like really spicy food. I don't like hot okay. food, I think. Anyone who eats a meal with the intent of being uncomfortable is defeating the purpose. And so um, I'm going to go with, I despise highly spicy food. So no, no hot wings challenges for you then? No. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a good one. I mean, I grew up in spicy food, as you, uh, <laughs> as you guys probably know, but I can't hold it anymore, right? 
uh, in, in 20, 25 years and your taste buds change and whatnot. Uh, I'm not a big fan of fried oily foods, so I'll put it that way, right? Um, okay. Uh, that's that's what, not that nothing nothing for health reasons i wouldn't you know put it right if something is obviously good i'll go for it but generally not a big fan of you know fried food yeah well that doesn't vote well if you want to be a 200 uh 200 yard sprinter <laughs> no, as well oh, george come on yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right guys hey listen thanks so much for joining today and for the audience thanks for listening to today's episode uh you can find show notes and other episodes at appgate.com forward slash podcast and if you're not yet a subscriber please do subscribe or if you listen to podcasts this show is a production of appgate the opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the hosts and the guests and may not represent the views of their organizations I'm your host, George Wilkes, and you've been listening to Zero Trust 30. Thank you both so very much. Thanks, George. George, thank you for setting this up. That was good.